Welcome to the Out of Privilege podcast with Dr. Byron Burkhalter, where we will talk about issues of racism, white privilege, and the role they play in current affairs. We take an historical and sociological look at various issues and how they have laid the foundation for the systemic racism that the United States in particular is battling today. I'm Genevieve Haldeman, and I'll be your host. In this week's episode, Out of Privilege co-founder Wendy Apperson talks with me and two other women about what it means to be a mother to biracial children. Two of us are white and the other is black. We share our different perspectives based on our experiences and those of our children, the fears we have in today's environment, and our hopes for the future. While every story is unique, there are some common themes that emerge as we help our children navigate a racially charged world. Take a listen and let us know your perspective in the comments. Welcome, everybody. And by everybody, I mean um, my three guests today and our pets and possibly some of our children. <laughs> We've tried to find some, uh, quiet spaces. We'll see how that goes. I want to introduce uh, each of our guests. You know two of them already. Um, Genevieve Haldeman is joining us today. Lisa Adams as well. And Lisa was on episode uh, five with us. And Jamie Farr is joining us today. And the thing that, one of the things that Lisa and Jamie and Genevieve have in common is they've all been working in the workshops for Out of Privilege. And they also have something else in common. They're also parents of biracial children. And that's the topic of our podcast today. It'd be great if everybody could introduce themselves and share a little bit about their background um, and their children's background and uh, who they parent their children with. Okay, thank you. My name is Lisa, and I grew up in Santa Monica, and at that time, Santa Monica was a very um, multiracial community, and a, um, my first husband was African-American, and so my son, who is now 31 years old, <laughs> is uh, biracial or multiracial. That's great. Jamie? I'm Jamie. I have two kids. My daughter will turn six in two months and my son is nine months old. I am African-American. My husband is Caucasian and British um, and we have two biracial, binational, trinational children. I, we live in Seattle. I am originally from Seattle, so I, I am American um, and I obtained French citizenship. I am Genevieve. I have been in an interracial relationship for uh, more than 25 years. Uh, my husband is biracial, black and white, and we have uh, two children. One is in college and one is in high school. And we live in uh, Northern California. And Lisa, you live in San Diego now, right? Even though you were raising your son while you lived in Santa Monica. Yes, that is correct. I live in San Diego now. So we have lots of people on the West Coast talking together, and I just want to give a moment in time. There's, uh, while this is being recorded, there's wildfires all up and down the coast and lots of smoke blowing all over the place and causing unhealthy air quality in a lot of places on the West Coast. So we're thinking about everybody who is in a bit more danger today. I have been interested if there are experiences you've had as you've raised your children that have alerted you to the differences in culture or race around you? Have there been specific instances where it's become more obvious than not? I would say yes. 
let me start by saying that my son is very white passing. Uh, many people think he is Latino or Greek because he has very large curls and tan skin. When he was, he went to Venice High School in which there are some white supremacist skinheads. And there was a time when he actually got jumped by them. But I don't think that they knew that he was African-American. Uh, he was actually stepping in and defending a, a person who was Jewish. So uh, there's, there's a lot of things that have, have happened, though, to him. But many of the slurs that he's been called have to do with being Latino, which he's not. And Lisa, how does he identify He's told me that in some ways he identifies with both communities or both ethnic ethnicities. And in other ways, he feels like he doesn't belong to either as well. So there's a little bit of both in there. And for him, I think he is more of an individual person. So he's not trying to fit in so much. He, he definitely has his own style. So I don't think he tries to fit in so much. But yes, he has a lot of relatives on his father's side who are African-American. So, you know, he's got family. Sometimes I think he doesn't feel like he fits into to either group 100%. He has a half-brother from his father, and he and his half-brother hang out uh, quite a bit. They, and he also has cousins. He told me recently, I talked to him, and he said he was going to go over to his half-brother's house and hang out with some cousins. And I said, oh, which cousins? He goes, I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> he says, but they're my father's cousins. So I know they're my cousins. I just don't know them that well. So Is his half-brother also biracial? Yes, he's half Latino and half African-American. Have any of you ever been mistaken or accused of not being your child's parent? Has that ever come up? Not yet, fortunately. So what I think is interesting for me is that both of my children, although they're, they're on a bit of a spectrum in terms of their skin color and their hair texture and curl, they probably both are more white passing than you might expect for biracial children. They probably look, especially my son, looks you know, like the spitting image of, of me and my family. Uh, Olivia definitely takes more of her father's features but still very white passing. I mean, I think you see the two of them together and they look very close, but you know, somebody I think would probably be more likely to question his parentage of the children versus mine. And when we travel, especially when they were young, not so much now because they have their own driver's licenses and things like that. But when they were young, we would travel with their birth certificates so that there was no question of what the parentage was, whose child they were. And especially if, if uh, Byron was traveling with them solo, he would have their, their birth certificates as well because we didn't want there to be any question or any mistake that he wasn't their father. That's not something that um, Caucasian parents would have to think about ever traveling with their children. It's not even something that would come up as they no. planned a trip or a vacation with their families. I remember a trip when Olivia was older, my daughter was older, and we were at the security checkpoint. This was before she had a driver's license or her own ID. And the security personnel was very specific in asking her who she was traveling with. I mean, I was standing right there next to her, but he specifically asked who she was traveling with and what relationship I had to her. Um, but he asked that of her to make sure that, you know, we were, we were related. So it was, it was an interesting experience. Also, probably it would, might have been difficult too 
just to have someone questioning her in front of you almost yeah, as I if mean, you weren't there <laughs> I, yeah that, it was definitely weird i certainly wasn't concerned about her uh about her answers but she then asked as we left why they were questioning her and i'm trying to explain you know the dynamic and of course both my kids have been born after um or have grown up after you know september 11 2001 so the the whole security dynamic has has dramatically changed and and that's part of the the issue that i think anybody has to deal with but it's particularly difficult with biracial children interracial familial relations in the you know, when you're traveling. Is it a consideration with schooling as well? Lisa, maybe the uh, school, choosing schools might have been different when you were raising uh, your son. Yeah. Since he's a little bit older. I was going to say that I uh, was a bit naive as to the state of racism in the United States when I had my child. I'm much more aware of it now, but my ex-husband has been stopped twice I only knew about the one time from Canada in which uh, they stopped him for several hours. And he also apparently got stopped in Sweden and they separated my son and him uh, going into Sweden and asked my son many questions. And he remembers that time. He doesn't remember the Canada trip, but I do remember him calling me and asking me about that. As far as school, my son went to a French American school for the first five years of school. And then the switched him to a uh, public school. I, I didn't, it was also in a very integrated area in Culver City, Venice, so I didn't really have much concern at that point. And as I said, I was probably a lot more naive than I should have been. Jamie, do you or Genevieve have thoughts around school or how race has played into your choice for school? Kira's school age. <laughs> yeah, she just started first grade. Um, virtual schooling, and she is in a bilingual school. Um, she started last year in kindergarten, and diversity was a consideration, but it was, for me at least, it was pretty low on the list because we, well, we live in Seattle, which is predominantly Caucasian, so you're just not going to get a lot of diversity in certain schools. Um, the schools we were looking at, we looked at private schools, and our local catchment area public school is predominantly Caucasian. But one of the things that we did like about the school that we selected for her is that it is pretty diverse, not just as far as ethnicity, but nationality as well. And when we visited the school, I remember seeing quite a few biracial kids. And so that stood out to me as a positive. I think for me, our, our children, uh, when they first started in school in the elementary grades, you know, the diversity wasn't necessarily as much of a focus. Um, and I think it, it surprised us, quite frankly, how non-diverse both our neighborhood was, how non-diverse the school that we chose was. Um, I don't think there were any other, uh, certainly Black children who were there. And there were very few um, Latino children. Um, and so it was... I think for us more a focus when we went to high school in terms of what we were looking for. And with Olivia in particular, I mean, with Jackson, his, his choice for high school was driven by a, a number of different areas um, and diversity wasn't necessarily a focus there. For Olivia, it very much was. And we ended up moving from school, a school environment in Santa Cruz, California up to San Francisco 
and uh, looked at a number of private schools. The public school system here is a lottery and we weren't actually living in the, in the city at the time. And so it would have been challenging for us to actually get into the public school system. Um, but we chose uh, a private school. And as we were going through that process, what was really interesting is that certainly the schools had diversity initiatives to bring more diversity in. And coming from a, um, a biracial background that she had, there were a lot of schools that were interested in her and wanted her to apply. Um, after she visited a number of schools, though, there were some that she just cut out immediately because of the experiences that she was having as a biracial and really intersectional human being, like we all are but that that wasn't particularly welcome. So there were definitely schools that we knocked off the list as we were looking at high schools because of their lack of diversity and because of the, the sort of lived experience that she got in her um, shadow days when she went and we just, we just knocked those schools off altogether. Um, but it's, it, it has been interesting, even the school that she's in is, while it's a bit more diverse, has had its own challenges with race and you know they've not, done well with that um, in terms of the way the school has handled it. And so um, it, it's, it's an important factor to consider, particularly as they get older, and it can be challenging even in a diverse location. You mentioned intersectionality, and uh, Lisa had, had mentioned earlier that her son is a little bit of a fluid identifier in, in the race category, and uh, a, a lot of a lot of adults a little younger than myself <laughs> are fluid in lots of ways in their life and they're parts of their identity. But Jamie, your kids are young. Liam's too young for this question, but your neighborhood is also multinational uh, neighbors in your, in your neighborhood as well. So she has exposure, not just at school, but in your home environment as well. How has that influenced or have you seen an influence in the building of her identity and how she recognizes herself? Um, and has race played a part in that? Last summer, I remember her saying a few times that she uh, was brown like me. She's like, oh, I'm brown like mama. And she told one of the neighbors, a friend, that um, I, I don't even remember how it came up, but she said to her, and this is a Caucasian woman, she said, mama and me, we have perfect skin. And uh, and she's referring to the the protection from the sun, because we have this book called How Your Body Works, and um, she likes to go through it sometimes. And we were looking at the part about uh, skin and how your skin gets darker during in the sun, and then you know if you're not getting as much sun, it gets a bit lighter. Um, but she so far she puts herself into I guess my ethnicity bucket, if you will. When we were looking through that book, I, I remember this clearly. She, when I was reading the part about you know how when you don't get as much sun, you know your skin will get a bit lighter, and she got upset and she started saying, "But I don't want my skin to get lighter like Dada's." And I felt kind of bad for him. I kind of looked at him and I said, "Well, why is that?" And she said, "Because then I'm going to have to cover up like Dada does and wear a hat in the sun and wear long sleeves and long pants. And I don't want to have to cover up." And so I. I just kind of said, oh, okay, well, you know, you don't have to worry about that. You know, we just continue to put on the sunblock and you can wear shorts and, you know, you, that's not a concern for you. But she, when she has to do drawings of herself, you know, in class or if it's something that she wants to do, then she, she picks the brown marker or the brown crayon. Crayola has come out with 
uh, a set of crayons that are supposed to represent different skin tones. And so I got that for her so she could find a crayon and use a crayon that was closer to her own skin tone so she didn't always have to use the dark brown one. Um, and so that was something that was kind of new for me because I didn't have anything like that growing up. Um, but she, so far, we don't use racial terms like Black or white or African-American or Caucasian. She, but she describes herself as, as being brown like me. We'll, we'll see how that evolves mm -hmm. or if it does. Interesting. Or even if it's a dominant part of our identity until the rest of the world tells her if it, it, they think it is or not. But the way she's building it herself, they're there are other facets of her personality that seem to be more prominent. Like she's an entertainer. <laughs> yeah, that she is. <laughs> that definitely is. Um, yeah. Well, and it's interesting to me because the people around her are mostly Caucasian. I mean, other than myself and my mother, at the moment, there are no other African Americans in her life. So it's interesting that she is choosing to or she sees herself as being closer to me um, or my side of the family. But I think it's, it's mainly just because of skin color. I mean, she, she's in between me and my husband. You know, he's pale, I'm dark brown. She's kind of a mocha cafe au lait, but she still puts herself on you know, in my bucket, if you will. Interesting. I just learned about the, the new crayons. I have another girlfriend who has a kindergarten, first grader aged person. Uh, child and and he, that was on his school supply list that he was supposed to buy and she's like I didn't even know these <laughs> existed so I think they're I think they're pretty new <laughs> I think yeah. none of us <laughs> would I have in the past year or so I just I, I don't remember how I came across uh, it but like oh I have to get these <laughs> so Genevieve you're mentioning uh, that there's been some issues at uh, Olivia's school and a lot of schools have been having trouble dealing with the the more prominent um well protests but also um police brutality episodes and then the protests that are following and the discussions around this but i i think that what happened at olivia school was didn't have anything to do with that it was separate can you share a little bit about that yeah, so this actually happened last fall, and it was prior to, obviously, the, the most recent round of, of protests and issues. It was another student who had posted something on social media in blackface and was using the N-word. Uh, it was a student who had done this, so obviously other students saw it. It was reported to the administration. And the person who reported it to the administration was then targeted, who was African-American, was then targeted by someone else. And they put a, posted a picture of her and posted something like snitches get stitches or something like that, which rightfully so, they took as a threat to that individual. The school definitely did not address it effectively. And the young lady who had been targeted happened to have a, a father who was a police officer. And it escalated so much that the police came to investigate and address it. And when the school still didn't properly address it, they went to the media and uh, addressed it that way. It was, uh, it became a huge, huge issue and, and crisis for the school. 
the week of Thanksgiving, this news article or the news story comes out on, uh, on television. And I mean, the school just didn't know how to talk to the families, especially families of color who were going through this. And it was odd to have my biracial husband talking to the head of that school. My biracial husband, who is an expert in race and ethnic relations, to have the head of that school try to explain to him how these were nice white people and they didn't mean what they were doing and try to excuse and uh, allow the behavior. And so that, as you can imagine, did not go well. And uh, they're still dealing with the fallout from that, quite frankly. They lost almost all of their black faculty. They've lost a tremendous amount of diversity. And as parents and families of color, we have been holding the school accountable to the diversity in their teaching staff, the diversity in their incoming students. And they just are not, they're not meeting the, uh, the expectations, quite frankly. And it's, it's been a big struggle to have them center the experiences of that, that black young lady who had been targeted in this, in this interaction to understand what they were going through, what she was going through, and what her fellow students of color were going through while the school was excusing the behavior of this other individual, of these two other individuals who were involved in that. And so it was, it was just an awful, awful experience. The, the students actually came together over a period of time with other black uh, students in, at other local schools, and they all marched in downtown San Francisco, which was fantastic. I mean, they, again, this was all before the current activities that are going on, but they all marched, they had their signs, they were very deliberate and focused on what they were working to achieve. And I think the school is starting to get the message, but it has been uh, quite a challenge for them to recognize the impact that their bad reaction to this issue has had on the families of color. What was your daughter's reaction to all of that? Did she want to leave the school? Did she want to stay and, and fight? Or what was, how did she respond to all of this? Yeah, I mean, she was, um, I think that's where her sort of activist uh, tendencies kicked in. And she became very active in, in fighting it. She's part of the Black Student Union at the school. Um, she is part of uh, a number of, of groups that are bigger than the school. She went to some NAACP meetings. And so I think quite frankly, this triggered her to become more of an activist and to lean in to addressing the issue at the school. So she didn't wanna leave, uh, but she has been very, very active in, in getting the school to change and to address these issues differently. And, and again, intersectional. So it's not just these issues, but she just had a whole fight with the schoolers in the middle of a fight with the school around pronouns. And so, you know, she, she's definitely picking up on diversity holistically and the intersectionality that she identifies with. You mentioned that she's part of the, the Black Student Union. How does she identify herself? Does she describe herself as being Black or African-American or does she say that she's biracial? She does say that she's biracial, but I think that she would embrace the, I haven't asked her recently, but I think she would absolutely embrace the, the black side of her heritage um, more wholeheartedly than the white side of her heritage at the moment. My son is the, other, the opposite end of that. He is not at all engaged in the same way that she is. And 
that may just be his own sort of personal experiences. But for him, his focus is, let me just stay out of trouble. Now, he's got different issues. Again, he's white, very much white passing, uh, but he's also six foot eight. And so that presents different challenges for him. It's, I think, less of a racial issue for him and more of a, that the world was not built for people who are six foot eight. There was some thought leadership done around, um, I think it was mostly around adoptions and adoptions of biracial or black children or, or children of color being adopted by white parents. And there was the thought that white parents weren't qualified to parent either biracial or children of color. That judgment is in the ether. And I was wondering what you each think about that idea and whether you think white or Caucasian parents are qualified to parent children of color. So my immediate reaction to that is that you're basically asking Lisa and Genevieve if they're qualified to parent their own children. And if my husband is qualified to parent his own kids, I don't have a very positive reaction to that question, truth be told. I, they're not any less qualified than anyone else. I mean, obviously there are cultural considerations, but you know, why, why would they be any less qualified to, to parent their own kids? Well, no, I, I, I kind of agree with, with uh, Jamie on that. However, I, I have seen, I have quite a few cousins who adopt uh, children of color because they are religious and they need to save all the babies. They don't think that they have any racism in them and they aren't willing to do the work. And I, I don't know. I don't know whether that would be a good way to, to raise a child when you say, okay, there's no racism. Look at our family. We have Korean and we have four African-American children and we have uh, you know, Chinese and I don't know what all. They've got about 16 children in their, in their family. And I know four or five of them are African-American. In their little um, cocoon, I think it's wonderful. But I think that there is that white saviorism going on. And I do think that outside of that, they need to prepare these children. And I don't think that they are qualified to prepare these children for the rest of the world. They're preparing them for religion. There's the part of that. I, I, I understand where the question's coming from. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a... Um, a few ways to think about it. You know, I, I don't necessarily think about it as not being qualified to parent my own children because they are half of my blood. And in addition to half of, of my um, racially diverse husband's blood. And so, um, which I think creates a unique dynamic. You know, my children have very different hair. It's not, it's not my hair. It's not my husband's hair. It's sort of somewhere in between. And so quite frankly, you know, it's, it's a whole new landscape there to go out and try and address that. If I go into a, you know, a traditionally black hair salon, they're going to look at her hair and say, I don't know what to do with this. This is not, <laughs> you know, this is not what I'm used to dealing with. Um, and believe me, I have, I have looked high and low for hairdressers to work with my daughter's hair. And it, it can be quite challenging to, to find something that fits on either side of that equation. And so, um, again, they're, they are half of me. And, and so, to me, the parenting of biracial children is, is definitely slightly different than the question of adopting children from uh, whether they're Black or any sort of different uh, cultural background. And I think part of the issue there is less about 
whether I'm qualified to do that. But I mean, to, to Lisa's point, more around, am I willing to do the work to make sure that they have exposure to diversity in their lives, not just their own heritage, but diversity in general. And I think that that is challenging for any parent to do. In the end, ultimately, though, the way that I think about this is that if there are loving parents who want to bring children into their home, who don't have any other way or any other place to go, that that's better than nothing and better than being part of the foster care system or better than being shipped around to people who don't want them. And so, you know, it is, it is a bit of a, a catch 22 to a certain extent, but if there's a loving home that wants to welcome these children and take care of them and help them grow up, then we shouldn't be criticizing that. I, I would like to see people who, who bring children of different cultural backgrounds into their homes make a concerted effort to expose them to not only their own culture, but to others. And like I said, I think that's something that every parent should do regardless of the racial makeup of the family. I hear a lot of that. I'm, I'm adopted. I agree that <laughs> being part of a loving family that's providing safety and comfort and basic survival needs is better than being tossed around in a system from that perspective anyway. What are the ways in which you're preparing your kids for the future, or Lisa, you did <laughs> prepare your kids for the future in, in, a, in America, and you're raising your son came before you became less naive, you were saying earlier, about how racist this country actually is and, um, and how much a part of uh, the environment that you both were in, uh, how that was affecting him. Are there ways in which you prepared them to deal with race and their race specifically in this country? I would have to say, you know, as I said, I was fairly naive as, and I would probably be a lot different. And especially if my son was um, looked more ethnic than he does, I would probably be a lot more stern about uh, interactions with police brutality or police. And uh, I would be um, a lot more aware of, of what interactions he is having at school, things like that. But I, um, I didn't really feel that he needed protecting at that time. Um, obviously, when we had the protests going on, I called him up immediately and said, are you going to the protests? If you are, I'd like you to be really, really careful about the police. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. uh, he did not attend them while, while he supports them 100%. He did not attend the protests because he's working with a very vulnerable population in uh, Los Angeles, the homeless, and he cannot afford to give them COVID. So since the pandemic, he has been pretty much staying at home. And I'm amazed at how adult he is, <laughs> how <laughs> responsible he is being for other people's lives. It, it, I just love it. So, Have you thought about that, Jamie, for uh, your very, very, very young son? I have, and I, I worry about my son in ways that I never did and don't about my daughter. So you hear about um, African-American men having the talk with their sons about how to react or interact with the police. And I've started to wonder, you know, am I going to have to have that talk with my son? 
am I going to, because my, my father passed a few years ago, so he's no longer around. Am I going to have to contact one of my cousins to say, hey, can you talk to my son? Um, you know, I've got a few years to figure it out, but it is something that I've started to think about because I don't think that that is necessarily something that his father can prepare him for. You know, he could certainly give him some advice, but it wouldn't be from his own experience, you know, as a Caucasian Englishman. So it's definitely something that I have started to think about. My kids are still really young, but I was surprised, although maybe I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised that once I had a son that I was almost immediately concerned about him so much more than I was uh, about my daughter. You know, I, I never had concerns about her potentially interacting with the police, but I do have those concerns about him, even though he's still a baby. And I know Byron has had a couple of um, stories of interactions with police. Has he shared that with your son, Genevieve? Absolutely. I mean, he has been, I am as much in the learning situation as the kids are in understanding what that experience is. Um, just as we go through life together, I've, I've experienced the dynamic, the racial dynamic that exists in so many different situations. He certainly has had the talk with both kids. I mean, again, Olivia is much more focused on the, the protesting and being out there and being very, uh, very forward. And, you know, we've had the concerns for both of them. The other thing, and again, I mean, this isn't very racially oriented, but Jackson is, is very tall. Even in middle school, there were kids who picked on him because he was tall, because he was the big kid, they would bully him. And, and he's just the gentle, like he's a gentle giant in terms of the way that he approaches things. Um, but there were a lot of people who saw it as their, their place to, to go after him because he was the, the big guy. And that would establish their dominance in that, in that ecosystem. I think we've had to work with him on how to handle himself in those types of situations. And I think even, even if he is passing as white, it is entirely possible that his height would exacerbate any perceptions that the police may have of him. So one last thought. What are your biggest hopes? What are your hopes for your kids in the future in this country? My hope is that the, the world that they eventually get to know is less racist, more accepting, more tolerant, more accepting of diversity in all its forms than it is right now. Absolutely. A kinder, gentler world where there's more equity. You, we always want our children to have an easier life than we had. That's one of the things I don't think I, I put a lot of thought into it when I had a biracial child that he could be having such a rough life and, and he's not right now, but because of the, the way the United States has been, I definitely think that could be, that could be something that would happen. What I hope is that they have the, the freedom and flexibility to voice their concerns, their perspectives, their opinions in battling the, the racism that exists today so that their children don't have to deal with that. And it becomes a more diverse world that, that they live in and that they can bring their children into. 
There is one thing that um, didn't come up that I wanted to ask Genevieve and Lisa about is, have you experienced the, I guess you could say the othering of your children because they are biracial? You know, comments like, oh, mixed kids are so cute and oh, biracial kids are so much more attractive. Have you guys experienced that? Yes. And my, mostly people would tell me my son has a great tan when he was about nine months old. He had blonde hair and it was straight sticking up and he had a beautiful tan and everybody's like, you must take him to the beach all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, and one other thing I too, did want to say too was that, um, you know, because my son is white passing, unfortunately he gets to be privy to the white people who think that he is Caucasian and they expose him to their horrible thoughts and comments. Like they pull him aside, think he's safe to tell him their racist ideas. That just crushes me that he has to deal with that crap. When my kids were born, it was all about how cute they were, the biracial skin. Even before um, I had kids, there was that when I was pregnant, people would talk about, oh, the biracial kids are gonna be so cute. They're always so cute. Um, and so there, there's definitely that that happened early when they were young, certainly not as much now. I think, the, I think the challenge that they face is that they don't quite fit in either side. There's enough difference where they're not, they're not clearly black and they, you know, they don't necessarily, they aren't necessarily seen as black by their black colleagues. And they're not necessarily seen as white by their white colleagues. And so they kind of fit in the middle a lot of times. And I think that's, that's probably the biggest challenge that both of them have gone through. Again, I think Jackson has gone more and most of his friends would, would uh, see him as white. Uh, most of Olivia's friends see her as black and that's how they tend to identify. But it, it was tough, I think, for both of them to really find where they felt like they belonged just in general. Now, I think that's natural for, for any child growing up in just the awkwardness of being a human being trying to find a spot in the world. But it is exacerbated, I think, by, by not having a group that you easily fit into and can identify with. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Out of Privilege podcast. Please subscribe on your podcast platform or sign up on outofprivilege.com to get updated on new episodes when they're available. Let us know what you think and feel free to share on social media.